St. Patrick begins his confession in this way. I am Patrick, yes, a sinner and the simplest of peasants, so that I am despised by the majority of men. My father, Calpornius, who was a deacon, was the son of Potitus, a priest. We lived in the town of Banaventa Bernier, and outside there was a small holiday villa. It was here that I was taken captive. I had no option but to surrender myself, for I was not yet sixteen years old. At that time I did not recognize the true God. That was why I was taken as a captive to Ireland, along with many thousands of others with me. We fully deserved to suffer like this, for we had all turned our back upon God and did not keep his commands. Not once had we listened to the bidding of our priests as they warned us constantly about our salvation. And so the Lord let down his anger upon us and scattered us among the heathen tribes, even unto the farthest land, where now my utter insignificance is plain to see among a strange race. That's St. Patrick. My name is Matt Cheminsky. This is the Curious Catholic Podcast. So happy feast of St. Patrick. And I thought it'd be good to have a, a shorter episode devoted uh, to two things. The first will be just a quick look at this wonderful writing, the Confession of St. Patrick. And the second part will actually be me speaking with my wife about our honeymoon to Ireland, which occurred about this time uh, 11 years ago. And one of the things that we did on that trip was climb Crow Patrick which is the mountain that we think uh, Patrick ascended to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. And uh, my wife and I have a dispute, a little disagreement over whether or not that was a fitting honeymoon activity or not. Um, And then we'll also close by talking briefly about uh, the great John Wayne film uh, with Maureen O'Hara called The Quiet Man which uh, I know a lot of people uh, watch this time of year as well. But first about the Confession of St. Patrick. And, you know, it's a great uh, short reading written by the saint himself toward the end of his life, sometime in the mid to late 5th century. Uh, Dates aren't quite clear on, on, on Patrick's actual date of death, but, you know, that's the ballpark. And just to give you a little context, uh, St. Augustine, who we've been talking about on the podcast, died in the year 430. And so Patrick seems to have passed away uh, not too long after Augustine. But similar to Augustine, Patrick writes a confession, a writing, a recounting of his life, uh, almost done alongside God. Um, it's not an autobiography. It's not meant to be comprehensive. It's very episodic. Uh, it does begin with his being captured and enslaved and taken to Ireland to become, you know, a, a tender of the sheep. And we do get certain episodes of his of his fleeing and coming back home uh, to his family in Britain and his uh, eventual recapture. And uh, eventually he does become uh, a priest and bishop and goes back to Ireland after after some sort of experiences wherein he felt 
uh, convincingly called back by the Irish people to serve them. Um, and I highly suggest you, you, you take it, uh, take uh, a chance and, and read the thing itself. Um, again, it's very short. My copy cost a whole $4 at Baldwin's Book Barn in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Uh, but the version that I have is from Image Books, and their list price is four ninety five. So five dollars, uh, well spent. And I thought I'd just quickly look at three what I thought were three very important, uh, or at least uh, very interesting themes or or sort of moments in the text that uh, were particularly interesting to me. Uh, the first is Patrick's prayer life. The second has to do with this sin of his youth that he confesses to a friend, and the friend later divulges it much, much later uh, to certain ecclesial authorities. And this gets Patrick in a bit of trouble, uh, unjustly so, it seems. And then the third theme is just Patrick's view of death and resurrection. And again, he's writing the confession later in his life as he's looking uh, towards the, the shorter part of his lifespan uh, more years and days have gone by than he'll have in the future, and so he's, you know, taking taking stock of of his life and his life at the service of the Triune God. But his recounting of his prayer life is really interesting. Uh, in chapter sixteen, he talks about uh, being in Ireland, and he's made a shepherd to uh, tend the flocks day and night. He says, and he said, you know, quoting him now. I would pray all the time, right through the day. More and more the love of God and fear of him grew strong within me. And as my faith grew, so the spirit became more and more active. So that in a single day, I would say as many as a hundred prayers, and at night only slightly less. Although I might be staying in a forest or out on a mountainside, it would be the same. Even before dawn broke, I would be aroused to pray. In snow, in frost, in rain. I would hardly notice any discomfort, and I was never slack, but always full of energy. It is clear to me now that this was due to the fervor of the Spirit within me. And Patrick, throughout the the text, uh, reveals his insecurity over his lack of erudition and education when compared to certain uh, experts in the law and those that were uh, highly educated for his time, but you can tell that his prose is rather full of life, and and obviously it's coming by way of translation. But there is a great sense of vigor and authenticity in in his way of writing, and it makes for a very uh, interesting read. And shortly after that, in in chapter seventeen, uh, which is in part two of of the text, there's something really fascinating going on where Patrick has this very clear sense of the interior indwelling of the Spirit and the Spirit praying within him. Uh, he has a, um, a sense that uh, God is present within the Trinity, is dwelling within him. Um, he says uh, in chapter 25, uh, And once again I saw him praying within my soul. It seemed as if I was still inside my body. And then I heard him above me that it is over my inner man, so that there he was praying with many a groan. And as all this was happening, I was stunned and kept marveling and wondering who he might be, who was praying in this wise within me. But as this prayer was ending, he declared that it was the Spirit. And so again, this, this great sense that uh, 
the Holy Spirit was present within him, uh, making supplication and, you know, petition, uh, with, with, you know, with, with sort of inexpressible groanings within him toward the Father. So that's, that's really rather uh, impressive to read. And then regarding the sin of his youth, you know, Patrick recounts that uh, on the night before he was he was ordained a deacon, he revealed to a friend a sin of um, his his youth, uh, as he calls it, uh, from when he was fifteen. And so he makes it known to this friend, obviously just wanting to sort of get it out in the open, get it out uh, off his chest, so to speak. And then later in his life, the friend betrays him and reveals this sin to ecclesial authorities in Britain. And you can sense sort of the raw um, wound of betrayal that Patrick feels as a result of, of this um, of this friend and what he had done. And, um, you know, that's, you know, just, just an interesting part of, of the text um, where you really see the humanity of Patrick on display. Uh, he doesn't think vengefully or or revengefully um, toward this friend, but definitely you get a sense of his uh, his disappointment and his woundedness. And then the last theme, you know, comes uh, toward the end of the text, and it has to do with Patrick's view of death and and sort of how his life might. Uh, be summed up and 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 the thread might be cut. So this is chapter 59. And I just thought that this was rather striking imagery, uh, very forceful, very authentic. And, um, you know, it, it, it's a, you know, it, it's a sign of a man who's lived his life in service to the Lord and fears, fears nothing really. And so in chapter 59, he says, and if I've ever imitated any good for the sake of my God, whom I so dearly love, I beg that he would grant me that I may pour out my blood in the company of these exiles and captives for his own name. Yes, and even if my body were to remain unburied, or my corpse be torn pitifully limb from limb by dogs or wild beasts, or that birds of the air eat it up, for I know with utter certainty, if this should be my lot, that I shall have gained my soul as well as my body, because without shadow of doubt on that last day, we shall all rise again in the sun's own brilliant blaze, that is, in the glory of Christ Jesus, our Redeemer, as children of the living God and fellow heirs with Christ, still destined to be shaped in his own image, since from him and through him and in him we are going to reign. So again, if you get a chance, track down a copy of the Confession of St. Patrick. It definitely gives us a much more accurate and full understanding and encounter with the saint, uh, especially compared to a lot of the depictions of him, or at least uh, excuses make people make in his name uh, on this day. And so, um, again, well worth the read. And um, I hope you do get a chance to, to take that work in. And so now we'll transition to my interview conversation with my wife about our excursion up uh, to to the pinnacle of Crowpatrick in County Mayo, Ireland, and then our uh, sort of back and forth over uh, the movie The Quiet Man from John Ford starring Maureen O'Hara and John Wayne 
and how we both view it in, in slightly, uh, slightly different lights. You were a tough guest to get. <laughs> Had to go through five different people to get to you. And we are five children. Your publicist, your manager, your biggest critic, your baking partners. But I'm going to talk about probably the highlight of our honeymoon <laughs> in Ireland. A perfect honeymoon activity. It's not a honeymoon activity. Namely, the climbing of Crow Patrick or the holy mountain of uh, Patrick and his fasting for 40 days and 40 nights or so the story goes. And after his time upon this mountain, uh, he came down and expelled the snakes, as, as some tales have it. But um, it's a holy pilgrimage site. Uh, we went there after obviously getting married about this time, 11 years ago. For about 11 years, you've been disputing me over whether or not it was a honeymoon activity. Correct. Why do you reject that title? So, <laughs> well, I remember driving up to Crowpatrick and you're telling me about, you know, sort of the history of this mountain and it's beautiful. And, you know, here we are walking in the, in the same place where Patrick was and, you know, there's this beautiful romantic feeling about it. And then I look at, um, the set of Hills and I see one of them that is so high that the clouds, you can't even see the top because the clouds are covering it. And I'm thinking to myself, there's no way that you can climb this. I think I might've even said it. There's no way you can climb that. You would need like climbing gear. You would need like oxygen at the top. And we, I believe, started our ascent under that assumption that maybe this was not actually the mountain. But uh, then we were greeted on our way up by some little possibly leprechauns that were trying to trick us into believing that we were almost there. They told us we were almost there um, when in reality we were just in the foothills. But uh, yeah, I don't think a honeymoon activity you need climbing gear. <laughs> I think, I don't think you, um, have to come, you can rent a walking stick. Apparently we find out now in hindsight. Um, and I don't think that constitutes a honeymoon activity, <laughs> but nonetheless, we made the ascent we and we learned shortly after our encounter. I think there were actually Englishmen that tried to, they were, they were give us some confidence. Um, some empty confidence that we were close, um, but they were, uh, they got us good because we, we kind of realized after a while that they were just messing with us. And, you know, as we went higher and higher and, you know, the footing wasn't always the most sure, but still safe nonetheless, uh, you know, um, we started to get above some of the clouds. Yes. And we actually saw it rain on people even watch though it rain. <laughs> we were above the clouds that were raining on others um and then we eventually did get to the top so we're looking at the website and it seems to suggest that it might take about two hours to get to the top which that sounds right maybe two and a half i was probably moving slowly in my disbelief that we were actually doing it but also to make this point because the argument is ongoing um 
anything that people do as a penance, I think can be stricken from the potential list of honeymoon activities with a a fair amount of of certainty. That's a good point. Um, I'm not persuaded, but (laughs) it's a good point. I'll take that into consideration. we got to the top and when we were the only ones at the, at the, at the um, pinnacle there, it was beautiful. You know, the sort of 360 panorama of the, of the bay and it was, the sun was shining and there was this cool little chapel up there that they hold masses and confessions in and had a little lunch. And it was, I mean, that sounds like a picnic, which would qualify as a honeymoon. I think we had granola bars. I think we had granola bars and a Cadbury bar. Which you loved. I did. <laughs> That's not a picnic either. <laughs> it, it was close enough to a picnic under the circumstances. So uh, we'll put that in the honeymoon activity side of the ledger. And, um, you know, the beautiful scenery, the solitude. It was just you and I. So that's romantical in a way. Sort of. Yeah, it was just you and I because everybody else had gone up and come back down already. <laughs> we were slow. The little old men were beating us. And then we went back down and, you know, it says it takes about another hour and a half down. But you're quite, you have a quite, you have a feeling of accomplishment. That's for sure. That's true. That is definitely true. I agree with that. You know, sort of a, a good sensibility in that way. Um, and we're still talking about it to this day. So it it was memorable, which seems to, um, you know, make me think it was entirely worthwhile. It will be, it would be nice if we could go back. We've talked about it going back for our maybe 25th wedding anniversary and bringing a chaplain with us and, you know, renewing our wedding vows on, in the chapel, the, the chapel on the, the top of the mountain is absolutely beautiful. It's, it's perfect. It's, it's wonderful. It's, it is that that piece of it is romantic. It's just the part getting up to it. The two and a half hours that it takes you to get up to it is not as romantic. But it's very marriage-like. Yes. You know, the ascent, the uh, arduousness at times, um, you slipping, me catching you. No, I don't think that is, I don't, <laughs> I don't remember that at all. Uh, maybe that didn't happen, but... Well, that was about 11 years ago, and, you know, tomorrow is the Feast of Patrick, and, you know, I've kind of gotten into this groove where yearly around this time I like to watch The Quiet Man, which um, you have a certain type of appreciation for. Yes. It, too, is a very romantic It's not romantic. It's not romantic. About a couple falling (laughs) in love, and they're courting under the watchful eyes of Michelino Flynn. Michelino right. Flynn. And the whole town. Well, they're just, you know, making sure things are on the up and up. It's uh it's definitely a particular picture of people courting. Um I don't know that that's a practice that we would have appreciated very much when we were courting or dating or whatever. But you there's a great line in the movie that fits you perfectly, right? That um Michelino Flynn about Maureen O'Hara's character and her red hair, you know, says that red hair don't lie. It doesn't. It just, it is. That is true. 
That is very true. She's got a fiery temper. It's a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Well, I figured we could we could watch the trailer together, and maybe people that don't know the movie would get a sense of it. Okay. There she is. There he is, John Wayne. Collar popped, half collar popped. I'd like to tell you about the quiet man. He's John Wayne in a picture you'll soon be cheering. I mean, that cottage. It's the story of Sean I mean, Thornton, a right intended man. Isn't that? No, it's a sweet little college cottage. I would live there. Thatched roof. Yeah. Yeah. Smoke coming out of the chimney. No, that absolutely. I mean, Ireland is romantic. The place is romantic. It's just the, <laughs> the movie isn't. <laughs> That remains to be uh, determined. In image free. There he met a fiery red-headed lass. And the village no, you don't have to say fiery red-headed. You can just say red-headed. Pretty bonnet you have on. Bonnet. She's about to haul off on here. Don't be talking to me about the bonnet. I'm saying it's redundant. Like fiery redheaded. Easy now. Have the good manners not to hit the man until he's your husband. And until he hits you back. Then her bully of a brother, Red Will Danaher, refused to pay her rightful dowry. Yep, there's the hair grabbing. Lots of bolts between us, Mary Kate, except those in your own mercenary little heart. Yeah, he's he's a little rough. I mean, not a little. He's rough, and uh, that doesn't age well. No, that part of the movie. No, but I get it. It's passion. He could have gone a little lighter on on that. Yeah, yeah. Especially as we're going to get to the fight scene a little bit, right? Between. Maureen O'Hara's older brother and John Wayne's character, Sean Thornton. And they fight throughout the whole countryside and town. They and sure that. do. Yes. And, uh, yeah. There's a passion again. There's a lot of passion. Mary Kate left him to go to Dublin, but he caught her at the station and brought her back with the and whole brought town her back. watching him do it. Dragged her back. Yeah, she just tried. Yeah, she missed on a haymaker there, and he kind of booted her in the behind. Um, so again, not the model of marital communication, I'd say. No, but and this is more on your side, I guess. Um, it is equality, though, because yeah, they are. They're, they're willing to go to He each treats other a little her. Bit. He treats her like an equal. That's for sure. It's a wonderful picture. The finest ever brought to the screen by John Ford, and he's won three Academy Awards. His direction makes unforgettable the performances of John Wayne, Maureen O'Hara, Barry Fitzgerald, and Victor McLaughlin. And it's a great soundtrack. That, yes, I agree. It's a great soundtrack. Not a romantic movie, but it's a nice movie. And a couple great, well, one great priest character. Yes. Both of the clergy are, are nice. Well, that's true. They have the they, uh, Church they have of the, Ireland. Yeah. It's um, a nice representation Arsene, of that. Yeah. But they are. It's a nice movie. It's not a romantic movie. But uh, we'll be able to take it in and, and view it tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. It's a date. I want to thank you for joining me for this special St. Patrick's Day edition of the Curious Catholic Podcast. I know it's different than the other episodes that we've done to this point but i hope it is in its own way uh beneficial 
and enjoyable addition to your celebration of this feast day. And I hope that, you know, by thinking of Patrick the Saint, we can uh, perhaps imitate him more fully in his holiness and prayerfulness and zeal for the gospel and his love for Christ and Christ's people. In the coming weeks, we'll continue putting out episodes. In about a week and a half or so, we'll have our final installment focusing on the person of St. Augustine. And following Augustine, we're going to transition to a focus on now St. John Henry Newman. So we have four episodes lined up to focus on Cardinal Newman and his legacy and, you know, what that legacy might mean for us in the here and the now. Until then, though, let's continue journeying further up and further in.